Welcome to The Advocate, the podcast that advocates for agriculture. I'm your host, Simon Pampana. With this series of podcasts, we'll be telling stories from the people of this ever-growing community, be it industry leaders or those just starting out, because each and every one of them shares a passion for ag and are doing their part in feeding a hungry planet. Louise Fresco is someone you should know about. Starting off as an undergraduate student at Varkening University in Research, she is now the president of its executive board in charge of one of the world's best agricultural universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. There were many steps in between. (laughs) In a career spanning more than four decades, Louise has accumulated a long list of achievements. But if ambition for prestige or money was the goal, Louise would have fulfilled this need a long time ago. Instead, what drives this trailblazer is something beyond career achievements. It is a desire to understand the hardships of people around the world, the reasons why they suffer, and the ways in which that suffering can be stopped. In her words, it is a lifelong search for awareness. I grew up not in the Netherlands, but mainly in Brussels, in quite easy circumstances. But I was always aware that I was very lucky to be alive and to be in in quite comfortable conditions, especially because of the Second World War, which was then still quite recent in people's memories. Comfortable conditions were something denied Louise's parents. My mother was born in Indonesia and my father was Jewish and he was born in Berlin and of course they couldn't stay there and so on. They luckily both survived the war, but in in quite difficult conditions, obviously. And although that was not something at the time you spoke about very much, uh, it was somewhere always in the background. As a child, Louise suffered many bouts of ill health. Yet the circumstances that her family had endured gave her a lot of reasons to be grateful, despite her own hardships. Her periods of illness presented an opportunity. Time to read and think. It was in her teens that her awareness of the world began to extend beyond her native Europe. Biafra, a territory of Nigeria in West Africa, had declared independence. That triggered a civil war the consequences of which had a profound impact on Louise's life. In 68, there was the Biafra famine. And for the first time, we saw pictures in Europe of really emaciated children. And I realized also that the famine was actually of of human making. It was not just food shortages, but it was also politics. So it made me aware of the fact that it was so terribly a coincidence that people were born somewhere and not elsewhere. And that's really, that's no merit of yours that you're born in comfortable Netherlands or in the outskirts of Calcutta or somewhere in the bush in Africa. You enter life with an advantage or a disadvantage. And I felt I was very privileged for many reasons. Once Louise had this realisation, there was no going back. It really made me think, okay, I want to do something because I have been lucky to have been born in a situation where I will never lack food. But here are people um, who haven't got the same start at all in life. And I said to myself, I have to do something useful. I can't just sit there comfortably and be a pampered young girl and lady. I want to do something. But that something was yet to be defined. Louise had the desire to help those less fortunate 
but she needed to focus that desire. So she got to work on understanding herself. She started keeping a diary. I've really always, I always felt, and I say this very often to my students, keeping a diary, however simplistic it is at the time, and of course it was very simplistic, you know, I was 15 or, or even younger, you know, what, what do you know about yourself in the world? Very little, but still by writing it down, it makes you more self-aware. So I started to think I have to go to Africa and I have to become a medical doctor. But um, actually at that time, I already realized that doctors have their limitations because Put very simply, you can easily give people medicine, but if they have nothing else to eat, what happens? So I have to start earlier. I have to start doing something about food and agriculture. To Louise, after all her reading and research, the career path she was embarking on made complete sense. But to her parents, it made no sense at all. I'm not at all a girl from a farm. In fact, my father was a university professor in philosophy, classical philosophy on top of it. So I grew up with all kinds of philosophers, Albert Schweitzer and people like that, but not at all with farms or things. So here I was, and I said to my parents, I want to go to an agricultural school. And they thought I was absolutely mad. They wanted me to do something decent, like history of art or languages, but not something practical like that, and not at all an agricultural thing. So I said, I want to be an engineer and I want to do agriculture and food. So I got into quite a battle with my parents because the last thing they wanted me was to go to an agricultural school. Um, but in the end, I, I just sort of by myself decided that the best agricultural school in Europe was Wageningen. And so I went to study at Wageningen, which was quite difficult for me in the beginning because nearly everybody there was from a farm. And here I was sitting at the back of the tractor with my French accent and my little chain of pearls and my nice little twin sets. And so it was a bit of an adjustment, but I loved it um, because um, at the time, at Wageningen, still is like that a little bit, there was an incredible freedom. After studying at Wageningen for a few years, Louise took on her first challenge of field research in Africa. This was a time to put all her study and planning to the test under a program the university called Tropical Orientation. I was 21 and I went to Africa for the first time, to Zambia and Tanzania. Um, of course, that meant living in a village without electricity and water. And I did my first work on cassava and nutrition there, which was quite something because, you know, thinking about Africa is something different from actually living there. And one had to be realistic about what one could achieve. But this fascination with agriculture production and nutrition was only um, reinforced. During her first visit to Africa, Louise realised that the nutrition people got from their food was something strongly linked with their farming practices and the influence of market forces. It would become a focus of her efforts from then on. Working with the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organisation of the UN, Louise would take further field trips to continue her work on cassava cultivation an important food source in the tropics. In the central region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, she was tasked with dealing with the agricultural and rural development of a section of the country four times the size of the Netherlands. There, she worked with many farmers who were growing their crops with little or no experience. Louise was part of a project to increase production for a growing urban and rural population. 
her work was in no small measure to directly increase the nutrition and prosperity of entire communities. It was also work she took part in on the other side of the world as a field scientist in Papua New Guinea. That was another dimension altogether. Not only was there no electricity, water, etc., but the country had just been getting on its feet in terms of its independence. And I worked for quite a while in very remote areas where they'd never seen a white woman before, particularly in western province around Lake Murray that's on the border with Irianjaya. There were many obstacles Louise needed to overcome. There was no transportation apart from boats, so I learned how to repair the motors on the engines of the boat, etc., etc. I had a two-way radio to, to communicate. There were no telephones, of course, so the, the two-way radio got hit by lightning within a month. And then the only communication was a missionary plane that came about once a week, if the weather permitted, and they actually landed in my backyard. And on top of everything else, the job was to grow crocodiles. Instead of cassava production, Louise's work in Papua New Guinea was to bring people out of poverty through crocodile farming. In a region with few options for agricultural development, crocodile rearing became the main source of income for many people living in swampy areas or river basins. I mean, you know, I still have 10 fingers, but I must have measured thousands of crocodiles over time. So it was a commodity, but it had to be regulated, of course, because the, the eggs were still harvested from the wild because you can't get crocodiles to breed in captivity. Unregulated hunting caused enormous damage to crocodile populations in the wild before 1970. Louise's work was part of an assistance program supported by the FAO to give technical support and program management for a precious natural resource. Louise was part of the team teaching people how to farm crocodiles in a sustainable and ethical way, ensuring a stable population and income for future generations. It is an illustration of Louise's pragmatic approach to helping people in developing countries. After years of arduous work in extreme conditions, Louise recognises how far her search for awareness has taken her. Well, I think that the most important thing uh, that's a real asset for me is that I've done really serious fieldwork for a long time, not just visiting for a week, but years on end. So, you know, I have a real in-depth knowledge of what the realities on the terrain are. But I also, because of my later work, first here in the Netherlands and then my nearly 10 years at FAO, I started to understand that it's not a matter of just technology and, you know, being with the people that also policies and politics shape so much what the conditions are under which people can actually hope, hope to grow and hope to develop. All my later life has been about getting the policies right and getting people, particularly people in power, to be aware of poverty, of rural poverty, of the need to have a balanced agriculture and have healthy food, not just for the rich who can afford to buy all kinds of expensive organic smoothies, but really to people who need it most. In the years since her field trips to the tropics of Africa and Papua New Guinea, Louise has gained enormous experience of the global food chain. 
She has learnt about the interconnectivity of many different countries and people with vastly different wealth and access to resources. The understanding she now has about food is a starting point for a much bigger discussion she wants to have with us, and for us to have with one another. Our food is our entry point into civilization, into culture. It's a, it's a window on people's personalities, but also on history. And, and to understand where your food, food comes from, which is so taken for granted in which uh, countries, is, is absolutely essential to understand where you are and who you are. And so my emphasis, strangely enough, I mean, I've never wavered, and this is not merit of mine, it just happened. From my, from my fundamental understanding that food and agriculture have something to do and with one another and that you have to understand that whole food chain in order to get the right picture and get people's link also to, uh, to what happens today. For many people living in affluent developed countries, the idea of ethical food production is analogous to what is known, depending on which country you're in, as biological or organic farming. But for Louise, it is more complicated than that. I can sympathise with the need to feel that you know where your food comes from and also the feeling that we have been, you know, quote-unquote, messing with nature. But, you know, we have been changing the ecology around us right from the first invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago. What we have learned in the last half century, which most people haven't really caught up with, is that we are much better now at minimizing our interference than we were before. In the 1960s and 70s, in most rich countries, we used tremendous amounts of the most dangerous chemicals, including DDT and so on. We're not doing that. In the Netherlands, for example, we have reduced by about 90% nine zero percent the amount of chemicals we use and um, we are producing much better our animals are much healthier but there is a disconnect that people's image is still the traditional image on the one hand agriculture as a kind of nearly religious experience of being in connection with nature which of course it hasn't been i mean most agriculture was brutal Louise says that growing food without any interference is a luxury that many people in the world simply don't have. Biological agriculture is attractive to people who have enough. But if, if you say a biological agriculture in Africa, it just means very low yields because you don't use fertilizer and you have very little animal manure. Poverty leads to tremendous erosion, tremendous uh, interference in the landscape because the less you produce per hectare, the more land you need. So I, I'm certainly not against biological agriculture as a niche for the middle classes and upper classes who can pay for it. But we also need to increase production. But we have to do that in the in the best possible way. And that will take some time. My, my prediction is that in the next 10 years, we will probably see a merger of the best elements of biological agriculture with the best elements of conventional agriculture. In countries with the good fortune of a secure food supply, consumers can enact change through their purchasing power. But not every problem we face with food production can be solved through market forces alone. Consumers, uh, in most cases, and understandably so, will still choose the cheapest stuff. So uh, I think governments have to 
ensure that whatever you buy in a supermarket or on a market stands up to scrutiny in terms of sustainability, in terms of, of food quality, safety and so on. And that, I think, is something that any politician needs to ensure, however short his or her mandate, because this is an investment for the future. Poorly nourished people are not what you want to leave as a legacy as a politician. The problem is not so much the ill will of politicians, but the lack of coordination between a Ministry of Agriculture, a Ministry of Rural Development, a Ministry of Water, a Ministry of Health, a Ministry of Foreign Trade, a Ministry of Finance. I mean, there is no country in the world, and I've been battling for this for years, that has actually integrated agriculture and food policy. Not one country, not even my own country. That's such a mistake. You know, this is where we, we need to work on having an integrated policy and say, okay, the well-being and nutrition of our people and the well-being of our rural areas is an absolute must because whatever you do, any generation of politicians, any political party will need that. You cannot develop your country without developing your rural areas. You cannot develop your economy if people are not well fed. So it's a, you know, it's a no-brainer, but um, people don't put it that way. So they shouldn't only produce the maximum, we should produce in a sustainable and healthy and safe way and as close to the consumers and as much in contact with the consumers as we can. Louise's awareness now points to those who will continue her work going forward. With all the young students coming through the doors of her university, how does she feel about the future? Well, actually, I am, I'm quite optimistic. I think there is a real sense of purpose with younger generations. It may take different shapes from what it did when I was uh, their age, but I think there's a lot of awareness of food and agriculture and health and climate. So I think there's a great sense of responsibility. I feel very strongly we should start even earlier with children at, at primary school and secondary school to make them visit farms, visit also food factories, visit supermarkets to understand how actually food chain works. This is an educational thing and to me it's amazing that you would grow up in a, in a Western country, you learn about history, you learn about a lot of things, but you don't learn about food and agriculture. Come on, this is the basis of civilization. Why don't we have something in the curriculum for them? What is important now is, is that people in my generation make available their experiences. The, the nice thing about Wageningen is still it's, it's great interdisciplinarity and it's international orientation. We have 115 nationalities on campus. Um, most of our teaching is in English and it's fantastic to see all these nationalities mingle, discuss and, and learn also to, to question. I mean, the most important thing which you can learn at university is not just to understand how photosynthesis or chemistry works or mathematics works, but to ask the right questions, to develop your analytical capacity and to be able to discuss, to assess arguments and to, to get that openness of mind. The reason why I'm, I'm also still so excited about my work is that I learn something new every day and that capacity to want to learn and do something with it, if you can harness that, you'll be all right for the rest of your life. Thanks for listening to The Advocate. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Bayer's Youth Ag Summit. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Google Youth Ag Summit and visit the website. Subscribe to our newsletter and be part of The Advocate community. 
Special thanks to Louise Fresco for making time in her very busy schedule to talk to us. We'll be back soon with new guests and new stories. But before then, please share this podcast far and wide and let us know what you think of this episode. We're also interested in suggestions for any future episodes. Perhaps we could even tell your story. Get in touch with us and let us know.